Ken is, uh, oh, was that too close? Lower. Ken is uh, probably, I would say, one of the most heavily influential reasons why I talk the way I do. Not how loud I talk, but my content. Um, and he's the reason why I'm a Presbyterian. He probably wouldn't agree with that, but uh, he put me on to Reformed theology, and that led me over there, but we still have a deep, deep commonality um, in covenant theology as guys on different tribes. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely am a, a product of your pastor's uh, interest and interaction. So it's cool to come over here and just give you some of the, I guess, fruits of what happens with other people that you never you might even see in here through that. So let me just uh, get right to it. Um, I, our church had a three-year anniversary recently, um, and I was just thinking, like, how would we talk about what we would celebrate in the last three years? Um, I think a lot of times, if we're honest, we kind of hype ourselves up with our own measures, and we pat ourselves in the back on, with things that I don't think God even honestly cares about. And, you know, I was like, man, what would God celebrate if we were hearing him speak. And I said, well, actually, he's done that. It's called uh, the Bible, the New Testament. Uh, and Thessalonians, I think, to a very new young church with lots of problems, Paul writes about measures that, that I think we could, as a new church or old church, measure what God is doing and celebrating instead of just hyping ourselves up. So let me just get right into it. I'm not one for big front porches and uh, introductions. Um, I get off the porch real quick and I get in the house. So here's the first thing I think we could see. Uh, maybe it's a Latino thing. I don't know. Uh, we, we spend more time inside than in the back. I, I don't know. But, uh, or the front, but that's just, yeah, all right. So the first thing I see here is in God saying to us this morning, a measure that we could celebrate and pursue is a church is a place that begins with God, doesn't arrive to God. We always thank God for you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. So Paul starts with God, you know, like in some, some conversations you have, and you say, well, eventually we're going to get there. Other conversations, you're like, no, we have to start here right away. The Bible and Christianity and church is a place that starts with God. We don't get to God eventually, which is why the Bible starts with the sentence in the beginning, God. We don't start with man. We don't start with the church even. We don't even start with salvation. We get there. We start with God. We don't start with family. We don't start with individual or collective. We don't start with country culture. We don't even start with reaching souls. We begin with God. And how you start is how you're going to end up. You start an inch with something else other than God, and eventually you will be miles away from him. The church is a place that starts with God. I, I like what our, our confession says. Uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's how it starts. We start with God. So we are a people who begin with God, not get there later. Secondly, 
We are people who live in God's living room, not his cubicle. We recall in the presence of our God and Father. So there's two things there I think are important. Presence, immediate presence, and God who is Father. That means that the church is defined essentially to be a people who are in Dad's living room and have access to a Father who's heavenly. This is not a corporation. This is not a business. This is not an entertainment machine. This is not a social activist institution or a political lobbying institution. This is not a social club. I think sometimes my people, we think that church is just a place to hang out with people you like. It's, it is social, but it's not a social club. It's not a genie club where you rub the God lamp to get what you want from God. It's not a museum where we just look at all these impressive God things that we could never touch. I would also say it's, it's not a university. Yes, God teaches his people, but it is a place where God teaches his kids in his living room. That means if we're going to understand what a church is, we must understand that a church is a place where an affectionate, delighted dad loves and enjoys his kid that are in his immediate proximity. A church is not a place that's looking for the presence of God, seeking intimacy. We have it. We start with the fact that we are in God's presence. And God is a father. It means that he doesn't tolerate y'all. Okay? He, he enjoys you in the way that an earthly father imperfectly enjoys his kids. That is the disposition of God. And so we are inviting people to a living room where dad enjoys his kids in his lap. You're inviting each other to that. We're not a, this is not a cubicle invitation. This is a living room invitation. This is what this is. It's the second thing I see in this text. The third thing I see here is very important, is that we live from God first, not for him first. We live from God first, not for him first. Verse 3 says, we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just unpack that a little bit. Paul is saying, I love that you guys work from faith. So all of your works are coming out of trusting in Christ's works. I love that y'all do trusting before you do anything, and all you're doing is from trusting, Paul is saying. And as you trust him, it's leading to love. And as you love him, it's leading to hope. So basically, Paul is commending the church for being consistently, regularly gospel trusting in everything that it does. There's a picture I like to use. is uh, When you go to mom's house, mom and dad's house as a kid, it's a bit different than when you go to grandma's house. Pick up, clean up, help with dinner help cleaning up. You, you, you got to contribute to the process. You go to grandma, grandma's house, or in my case, abuelita's house. She says, sit down. You ain't going to do nothing. You sit down. I'm going to care for you and provide for you. That's how you flatter abuela or grandma. Now, the way the church flatters God is like that. 
I provide for y'all. I give you everything to do everything, and you don't dare come over here acting like you're going to give me something, and you're going to rely on yourself. I provide for you to do everything. This is one of the hardest things I have seen for Christians to grasp, that the gospel doesn't just give you an eternal destiny. The gospel is what you live by every second of your life. I'm sacrificing for Jesus as I trust in his once-for-all sacrifice first. I am loving Christ as I trust his one-way covenantal love. I am obeying Christ as I trust in his perfect obedience that has been credited to me outside of my obedience. I am living new as I trust in the power of his resurrection. We are living from God first, not for him first. That's what a church is. It's interesting. I was talking to an old saint the other day, uh, like a few weeks ago. She said, I, had, I, had a, I left the church because all they did was preach the gospel. Now, first of all, that church doesn't preach the gospel, but it, she thought that. And I, I'm, I, I'm a, I, I need to grow. You know, I need to mature. The assumption is that we can work and be Christianly mature apart from perpetually trusting the works of Jesus as Christians. Paul says that that ain't y'all. You work and do everything Christian from faith. And that is what God is commending the church for. That is what a church is about. That's a measure that we can celebrate and pursue. But here's the fourth thing I see here. A church is a place where we give him all the credits... We don't make ourselves credible. We give him all the credits. We don't make ourselves credible. Knowing your election. Brothers loved by God. Verse 4. Those are two ways of saying the same thing. Church is a what? We are a people that have been chosen by God. Not a people that are choosable. We've been chosen by God. We are not volunteers. God has chosen you, Beloved. And the other way that God says that is that we are people that are loved by God, those who are loved by God, it says, not those who are lovable. That is what the church celebrates. Now, when I first got married, I, I wanted to be choosable and to be loved for things that I had. And then after you're married for about five minutes, and y'all smelling each other's junk all day long, you're, you change, and you're like, can you, can you love me not because of me, please? Because there's too much of me that's causing, like, this reasons for you not to love me. So can you love me in spite of me? That's what an honest married man or woman realizes after you've been with somebody. The church is a people who are not trying to spend their Christianity making themselves lovable, making themselves choosable, and making it logically rational for why God chose us. Like, it don't make no sense, so let's try to make sense of it. Let's impress God and make sense of why he chose us. Paul is saying, that's not a church. We are a people who are regularly celebrating and emphasizing that it makes no sense that God loves us. It makes no sense that he's chosen us. 
other than God loves people because of what is in him, not what is in them, either initially or finally or later. We are a people whose goal and mission is to regularly celebrate that the reason why we are a people is because God gets the credit, not we've made ourselves credible. That's a church. The opposite of that is Roman Catholicism, Islam. That religion is what? Let's, let's make ourselves logically sensical of our election. Christianity is, it never makes sense. And we get together every Sunday saying, blessed be God. We are chosen, not choosable. Loved, not lovable. God is not like us when we go adopt somebody. You know when we go adopt somebody? We go look for the cutest one, the youngest one, the smiliest one. No, that's not God. God picks the oldest, the ugliest, with the worst personality, does not want to be adopted. And he says, you're mine. This is what a church sees and pursues is a measure. But here's another thing I see here from this text. We are positioned by his promise. We are positioned by his promise, not our performance. We are positioned by his promise, not our performance. Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. Conviction. Those are three ways of saying the same thing. To say the gospel came with assurance, to say it came in, the power of the, in, in, in power. To say the gospel came in power, to say it came in the Holy Spirit. To say it came in the Holy Spirit, is to say it came with much assurance. So there's three ways of just saying what it means for God to come. And so basically, what Paul is saying, that when, when the gospel came to y'all, you trusted your position before God when it came, immediately, not after you convince yourself of your position later. Have you ever met that person where y'all got, got problems, y'all got drama, and you say, look, we good. We good. And they don't, they don't, they don't take your word for it, Right? And they, 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 over time, they, they try to convince themselves and convince you that, that what you said was actually legit. And so God, and, and y'all don't like when people do that, right? When you say we good, that's what you mean, right? Well, God is saying, when I said you are good because I saved you outside of your good, that's what I meant. Not go on a quest to convince yourself and convince me that the gospel's promises were really legit. The gospel came to you with assurance. Remember Abraham? Abraham's like, God, how do I know? How do I know these promises are legit? You know what God says? Because I said so. That's why. But how do I know? Because I said so. How do I know I'm righteous? Because God's word says, God told me 
that God declares the ungodly to be righteous apart from their working, Romans 4. How do I know I'm forgiven? Because the word says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from some unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. How do I know I'm a child of God? Because God said in the fullness of time, God sent his woman. God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so we might receive adoption as sons. How do I know God loves me? Because God says, I told you so, Romans 5. God demonstrates, present tense, his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, Christianity, a church is not about how we are regularly trying to convince ourselves of our position and God's promises. It is a people, when God speaks, when God absolves, when God declares his promises, we say, amen. Amen. And there's something else, I think, to bring out here that's important. I think Miami has a weird view of the power of God and the Holy Spirit, right? The power of God is a bunch of weird things. The Holy Spirit's a bunch of weird things. But here we see, what is the power of the Holy Spirit? God loves me! I'm saved by grace. That's the power of the Spirit of God. Not all this sensationalistic hoopla nonsense, but the power of the Spirit of God is God, by the Spirit of God, powerfully testifying to your soul that you are God's through Jesus Christ's perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That is the power of God in the church. Not all this stuff that people call power. We are positioned by his promise, not our performance. Here's something else that I see here that's very important. We are about the deepest devotion not slightness. We are about the deepest devotion, not slightness. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now that word to serve has, has a connotation of being enslaved. The idea is that he's saying, to the church that you guys became enslaved to your benevolently loving supreme master. Like he became, you became his benevolent property. You became his, he became your everything. And let me give you a picture that I think conveys what, what Paul is talking about here. Um, ladies, do you like it when, if your husband or soon to be husband would not cheat on you because he didn't want to get caught or because he didn't want to go through a nasty divorce or because he didn't want to, you know, cause problems with the kids, would that be flattering? Y'all can talk to me up, up here, you know. <laughs> Say, no, I wouldn't. True loyalty is when your soul is so compelled by someone 
that you do from the deep recesses of your longings make choices. And Paul is saying that when the gospel of one-way grace touched your soul, you said God is God and everything else is not from the recesses of my soul. And this is so different than I think the external outside Christianity where we think that godliness is not saying cuss words. Look, I'm not telling you to go cuss, okay? I'm just about, it's just, it's just external. It's just not saying cuss words. It's, it's not being some sexually promiscuous person. It's, you know, don't watch a show like Game of Thrones. It's make sure you go to church and make sure, ladies, you, you modest and, and make sure you don't smoke or drink and make sure you're not a liberal or make sure you're not a conservative. It is very outsidey. But Paul is saying, the church is a people that their, their, their submission to God, their enjoyment of God, their worship of God goes down to the depths of their soul where they're saying, in the deep recesses of my soul, God is better than everything and everyone else. God is better than my family. He's better than my country. He's better than my race. He's better than my, my class status. He is better than my image. He's better than my church. He's better than my ministry. He's better than my morality. God is supreme. I love God more than my choices, behaviors, the values, and how I was raised as a kid, my possessions, my rep. God is supreme, and I am his property. I'm not just externally doing things, but I have a new allegiance. It's like my son. My son, he has, my, my older son, he has a way of seeing, let, let me give you a picture. If there's a bunch of clutter on the shelf, my older son will, will, will he'll take a thing here and he'll take a thing there and, you know, he'll debate something about here. So the, let's say the shelf of the clutter represents idols. That's how we tend to kind of see it. Like, you know, Jesus can have, he can have my Catholicism, but he can't have my, my vocational idol, or he can have this, or he can have that. But my youngest son, my one-year-old, he has a different way of, of, of seeing clutter on a shelf. You know what he does? <laughs> Just straight, knocks everything off. Paul is saying, that's a church. It's Jesus alone. And I think this is so hard for our city, our context, because it seems like the church acts like it's Jesus' job to prop up your idols and fake gods. So you worship your image. Jesus can help you with that God. You worship your family. God is, Jesus is friendly to that God. You worship your country and your politics, Jesus can inflate that God. But Paul is saying that is not what a church being wrecked by the gospel does with its idols. We say Jesus plus no one, nothing. Listen, I love being a Cuban-American. But the second that, that, that me loving a Cuban-American hijacks the supremacy of being in Christ, that is an idol that God calls me to crush and leave Jesus alone. We are about the deepest, deepest 
religion in the deep recesses of our soul, not external outsideness alone. But here's two more things I say. We are about his son as the subject, not simply a topic. We are about his son as the subject, not simply a topic. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. So Paul is saying Christianity is what? It is a person. It is a someone. It's not ideology or philosophy. It is Christ himself. Christ is not, here's one way to say it. Christ is not something in Christianity. Christ is Christianity. It's kind of like when you, when you start dating a woman who has kids, if, if she's, you know, not married, or when you get married, one of the things you realize is that now, if you're going to do anything with that woman, you have to do everything in light of her kids being a part of that equation. So it's not like, I, I, I like you, you know, we got something good, right? No, no, no. These, these, these little people attached to me, everything you do with me is now connected to them. My wife... We remind you of that often. You love me, be about us. That's what God's saying. You're about me, you better always be about him, my eternal son. To be God-centered is to be Jesus-centered with Jesus being the subject, not merely a topic. Here's what it looks like. If you talk about end times in the church, it better be in light of the fact that Jesus is the subject of end times. If you talk about spiritual gifts in the church, then you better talk about spiritual gifts in light of the fact that Jesus is the subject and reason for spiritual gifts. If you talk about community, you better talk about Jesus as the subject of the community conversation. You talk about holiness, talk about obedience. Don't ever, ever, never Friday, ever, ever, ever. Like, why'd you cite that? Why'd you cite a movie that's not Christian? Hey, come on, y'all. Don't ever, 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 never talk about Jesus. Talk about sanctification and holiness apart from Jesus Christ as the subject. Never. Don't talk about the Holy Spirit without talking about Jesus as a subject. The Holy Spirit comes to what? Exalt Jesus. Don't talk about the Bible without talking about Jesus as the subject, not just a topic of the Bible. Your hope was in a someone. And, and here's something else very important. Now, I'm not, I think that secondary things are important. How you worship, your style of worship matters. Your view of baptism matters. Your view of church government matters. But that is not big enough to unite a church. If your church is united essentially by your view of baptism, you will not have the ability to stand when y'all really run through stuff. If your church is unified by how you worship, we're the contemporaneous church or we're the classical church, that will not be big enough There's only one son, one magnetizing body that gives the Christian the capacity to be unified, and it's Jesus Christ himself. It's not the style of worship. It's not your view of baptism. It's not your view of spiritual gifts. It's not your country, class, or culture. 
I tell our people, if you think that we're here to make a second generation Latino church, y'all got to twist it. Us being Latino is not big enough. Us being reformed even is not big enough. It is Jesus as the apex, as the point of the reformation that unites us. Jesus is the subject of subjects. He is not just a topic. Make Jesus the point or there is no point. Here's the last thing I'd say about measures, God's measures, God's commendations. We are about his salvation, not symptoms. We're about his salvation, not symptoms. Look what it says. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to impress you with, with, with Greek stuff, but there's a way of saying things in Greek where you can kind of make a statement very personal. So when it says Jesus who rescues from the coming wrath, it's almost like the Bible is saying Jesus who is what? He is the wrath rescuer. That's who he is. So it's not like Jesus happened to rescue us from wrath. That's how he personifies himself. So it's like, look, there's a difference between someone who volunteers to be like a, a mom, like a foster mom for a kid for a season, and someone who's like, I am mom, okay? Jesus is saying, listen, you want to know who I am in the church? I am Jesus, the wrath rescuer. That's who I am, not just something I did. Now, just think about what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, Jesus, who is the grand teacher, though he is a teacher. doesn't personify himself that way. He says, Jesus, who is the grand example. He is an example. I ain't denying that. But that's not how he personifies himself. doesn't say, Jesus... The grand miracle worker. Yo, he worked miracles all day. That's not how he personifies himself. He doesn't even say, Jesus, the social justice warrior. Now, I think Jesus has a whole lot to say about social justice, but that's not how he personifies himself. He personifies himself as the one who saves us from the fury of God's infinite wrath. Like, that's how he titles himself to the church. But listen to what he didn't say. Well, before I say what he didn't say, let me, let me give you a picture. I like pictures. Jesus used pictures. They help. Um, so my, when you raise kids, it seems like you basically lose your life for kids when you raise them. People say, kids are a blessing. Yeah, they are, but they kill you. <laughs> kill, they, they take years away. Women get sucked to death and they lose sleep. And literally, to be a parent is to sacrifice deeply for your kids. And then you know what your kids do? They're all about how you didn't do this little thing or that little thing and and it's like, you tripping about that? Like, do you know what it costs me to raise you? You got this trivial view of me. Paul is saying, that's not the church. The church is not, blessed be God who saved me from low self-esteem to high self-esteem. Now, blessed be God 
the God who saved me from singleness to marriage, hallelujahs, or the God who saved me from a worser marriage to a better marriage, from lower purpose to higher purpose, from bad habits to better, ha- to better habits, or the one who saves America from being not so great to being greater, or the neighborhood from being poor to being better. He says, Jesus who saves us from the wrath of God, who saves sinners from death. You were dead, guilty, pardoned, alive, under the wrath of God, now under his eternal pleasure. You were exiled, abandoned, and now you are reconciled, adopted. You who were captive to sin, now you are free from sin. You who the devil had your number, now homie got to shut up because God has his number and you're in Christ. Now, Paul's saying, that's the God that inspires worship in the church. The Jesus who is not a cough syrup symptomatic savior, but a colossal, wrath-bearing, eternal judgment, eternal reconciliation savior. That is what brings us to worship and sing songs and say thank you. Not this cute, cuddly, symptomatic, secondary Jesus that we seem to be so obsessed with in Miami. You know why we're so bored with God? Because we are not worshiping Jesus as the wrath rescuer. But we've made him about secondary things. Let me tell you. I'm not saying that some of those things don't have a place. They do. But I'm saying that's not the apex. That's not, that's not, that's not the bread and butter. That's not like the, the, the mantra. That's not the, 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 the it. Listen, there's a lot of people. <laughs> uh, here's one picture I like to use. So people talk about, I man, I used to be a street person. I used to be in the streets, and I used to be in drugs. And, uh, you know, now I got saved, and I'm, I'm not those things. You know what? Malcolm X said the same thing. Right? What, what? Malcolm X was a street thug, pimp pusher. Islam changed all that. But homie was not saved. Because we need Jesus, not who teaches us to be better, but who can credits his righteousness to us and covers us from the wrath of God and becomes our sin bearer. That's a not enough. Mormons can do that. Shoot, atheists can do that with their yoga. But only Christianity has a God who can save us from his holy, righteous wrath through Jesus Christ. So just landing the plane. Here's some applications that I think are, are helpful about these things. If we begin with God and don't get to God, I just want to ask you, beloved, how does it start and end for you in your house? 
How does it start and end for you in your discipleship conversations? Is it, are you always starting with you, wives? Husbands, it's always about you, starting with you and, and your respect and what you want. Beloved, that's not us. In every situation, in every setting, God is the starting point. And we work from that starting point. Secondly, if we are in his living room, not his cubicle, then what should your Christianity look like, beloved? Is it messy? Is it messy? That's what living rooms look like to me. Is it honest? Is it transparent? Or is it all, all nice and put together and, you know, you know, brother, everything's fine. But that's, if God is calling us into his presence like a dad, that means that we get to be real, we get to be honest, we get to be transparent, we get to be messy and like real with each other, right? That's Christianity. Christianity ain't no big costume party where we all convincing ourselves how we don't got a lot of jacked up stuff in our living rooms. And also, the fact that, that God brings us into a living room, it means that, you know what? Y'all should be real close to each other. It's, it's a family for a reason. Like, oh, brother, I saw you on Sunday. I'll see you on Bible study on Wednesday. But, love, but church fellowship is so much deeper than that. You should know me. You should know somebody in a very personal sense. Why? Because that's the kind of God that has saved us. God didn't say this. say, I'll holler at you on Sunday. And then next Sunday, well, I'll holler at you again. No, God brings us into his presence, into his fatherly living room to be with him all the time. And so it affects, beloved, the way we see our Christianity on the ground. Amen? It's like, beloved, let me say this. These people in this church, they're not a spot on your calendar. I'll find a spot on my calendar. They are your brothers and sisters, your family. Very different. Very, I'm not saying don't have a calendar. My wife loves that kind of stuff. Thirdly, in applying things, if we live from God first, not for him first, we need to be repenting of our faithless works. So I think we think of Christian repentance like this. I said the F word. I'm sorry. I got to repent of that. No, some of you got to say, I'm sorry for the fact that you're not cussing, but you're not doing it by the power of the gospel. That's, that's, that's repentance holistically. Some of you repent because you have an inappropriate interaction with a woman or you thinking it or you, know, or you did it. That's where you repent. No, actually, you need to repent of the fact that you're not committing adultery in your own flesh and strength and not by the power of God's affection. Beloved, Christianity is, you know, you know, Paul says everything that is not from faith is what? Without faith, it's impossible. So some of us, we got to repent of us doing really good things that have nothing to do with trusting Jesus' finished work. Because that's just not enough. Now, I'm not saying, unless you're doing it with the faith attitude, just do it anyways. Uh, but we're talking about just going deeper. Um, if, if Christianity is about giving him all the credit and not making ourselves credible, listen, we got to stop, beloved, listen. we got to stop selling our lovableness to, to each other as a church culture. This is what I see happen in Miami all the time. It's my, I'm in this place because I'm going to sell my lovableness to you. 
And the second that I can't sell that to you, you know what? I'm out, right? But you know what we do as a church culture? We don't sell to each other and promote to each other our lovableness. We sell to each other the fact that we are not lovable but yet loved by God. You know what I'm talking about? Just, just, just stop, stop being a marketer of your, of your lovableness. And start being a herald of the fact that everyone here is loved by God in their not lovableness. It's very different. That's the church culture. That's the church dynamic. That's the church reality. If we are positioned by promise, not performance, then we should be he has said people, not we feel I think people. We should be he has said people, not I feel and I think people. You know, as a pastor, people come up to me and they say, I don't feel like God loves me. Who cares? He said he loves you. He didn't say he loves you because you feel it. He said it. That's, that's our God, beloved. We live by what he has said, not what I feel. And what I feel is something to what he has said, even when I don't feel it. Now, you can think about that for like a long time. He has said, not we feel, we think. You know, I don't, I don't know if the gospel would work in my marriage. It don't matter what you think. God said, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I don't think. You ain't God. What you think, what you feel is not supreme. And that's hard for us, right? Because I, I can say, like, I feel like Latinos and, and black folk, we similar. We, we very feeling people, right? Like, you're just talking about what you ate. It's like, woo, you know, like it's passion, feeling. <laughs> Can't just talk about something. It's all intense and deep. And then we bring that into our Christianity. It don't work, though. It may work for your chicken. It may work for me, croquetas, <laughs> cafe. But not for God's declarations about his people. People say, that's a stereotype. Yeah. So is, so is the, the cafe y croquetas. So what? All right. Uh, if we are about the deepest devotion, not slightness, then we should be more like heart surgeons and less like cosmetologists. Heart surgeons, what do they do? They get down to the deepest, greatest problem. Cosmetologists, is just here. Now, beloved, that means that when you're dealing with things in your home, you cannot be a cosmetologist. When you're dealing with your kids, you cannot be a cosmetologist. When you're discipling people in this church, you cannot be a cosmetologist. You got to be a heart surgeon where the desires are addressed, the longings are addressed, the trusts are addressed. That is what it means to be a church. Not to be a bunch of cosmetologists. Bro, in Miami, we are great religious cosmetologists, right? Everybody looks great. And we disciple the exterior and leave the deepest part of who we are that is enslaved to our master just untouched. Last thing I'll say, two more things. Um, if we are about his son as a subject, not simply a topic, then we should be Jesus-centric in all things. This is what I mean. When, you're, when, when kids are in kids' ministry here, Jesus needs to be the subject. 
when you have a high school meeting, when you have a ladies' meeting, Jesus must be the subject of that meeting. When you have a Sunday school, when you have, even say like in your homes, when you're talking about life and you're talking about marriage, you're talking about parenting, Jesus got to be the subject of all that stuff. People are like, isn't, isn't that obsessive? No, that's Christianity. I mean, do, you, do we believe the stuff that Jesus says apart from me? Abiding in me, remaining in me, you can't do nothing. If we believe that, then women's ministry, children's ministry, discipleship ministry, one-on-one ministry, family ministry has to have that Jesus-centric reality. Otherwise, what we say subtly is that we need Jesus for some things and other things we just need ourselves. But, beloved, we need Jesus for all things. Here's the last thing. If we are about his salvation, not symptoms, then we should be big picture emphatic people. Here's what happens to, to the church. We become, man, Jesus, he didn't make my marriage what I want it to be. And so it becomes, you didn't do this. And, and it's, Jesus, you didn't make my, my neighborhood, my, my financial situation better. Or Jesus, you didn't make my health better better or Jesus you didn't make my personality drama better and my emotional baggage better like you didn't make my you didn't do all these things Jesus well maybe not but what did he do you know did, do you remember the the wrath of God thing that I propitiated you, you forgot that oh you forgot how you was dead a walking corpse, and I resurrected you. Did you, did you miss that? Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't make your kid more likable and more obedient. Did, did you remember when uh, I, I, I adopted you and I gave you my, my family's name? Remember when I snatched you from the devil's hands and told him, don't go there no more ever again? Do you remember when I justified you and I gave you the status of perfectly righteous because of my son, do you remember what I did? Beloved, I think the church oftentimes becomes a place where we are all about what Jesus has not done as opposed to being a people that are regularly coming to grips with what he fully did. I don't know about y'all. I feel like most of my depression... It's because I'm always asking Jesus to do something else. When he's done, he's already, <laughs> like Ephesians 2, he seated us in heavenly places. Seated you, present tense, in heavenly places. So we should be a big picture. What is not endlessly obsessed about what is not yet. And by the way, all that not yet stuff is going to be dealt with eventually. It will. But for now, you live in the already not yet. But the not yet is not yet. It's okay. It's okay, church. Let me pray briefly and um, bring us to a close. Heavenly Father, God, I, I, I I just ask that you would give your church, this church, um, the church, in Miami, the true church in Miami, the you know, 
all, all the gospel-believing, gospel-heralding church, I pray you would give them a, a sense of your measures. I, I think so often, like, we look at ourselves and we, to be honest, if, if I'm being honest, we feel like losers because, I don't know, our churches are just not happening. And we begin to compare ourselves. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to regularly give us your perspective, your measures that bring your fatherly heart joy and spare us from all the confusion. God, help us. God, I pray for this city, God. I'm so tired of being known in the rest of the U.S. for being the most gospelless church city God, would you please, would you, would you do more? Would you do more? Would you, would you bring more clarity? Would you bring more gospel revival? Would you bring more Thessalonian one-chapter local churches, God? Please. And may it start with us. In Jesus' name, amen.